Hello and welcome to the College of Optometrists podcast with me, Martin Cordner, Head of Research at the College. And me, Daniel Hardman-Hartney, Clinical Advisor at the College. So today we're bringing you a discussion I had with an ophthalmologist and a patient about a particular case of retinal tearing. But this was in fact no ordinary case for several reasons. Not only did the case involve a huge number of procedures, some of which never before attempted by the ophthalmologist, Cam Balagan, uh, he's a consultant ophthalmologist at Wolverhampton and Stafford Hospitals who under took these procedures. But also the patient was Professor Bernard Gilmartin, renowned emeritus professor of optometry at Aston University, who many of our listeners may have been taught by. Some of you may have heard about Bernard's experience previously from the lectures that he and Cam gave at two college conferences ago back in 2018. This conversation covered Bernard's story from the start throughout that time, right up to when Martin caught up with him and Cam at Optometry Tomorrow back in February, with Bernard joining by the phone. So, Daniel, what struck me most about this long and pretty incredible tale was the degree to which Cam benefited uh, from Bernard's engagement uh, in the treatment process. Um, He was very engaged in that process. That was something they had lots of discussions about what they were really trying to achieve here and how likely they thought it was to happen and what they really realistically thought they could be doing based on the ongoing um, situations. Is that something that you would echo, that patient engagement is something that actively is going to help you? Oh, it's it's essential in these cases. And and when you're going through the journey of... um experiencing sight loss um you you go through almost a bereavement Mm. uh, about what's happening and being motivated and and having buy-in to the treatment is is really a essential part of the journey and it's very easy for us clinicians to medicalize things and think Mm. about amd and the pathology as this this treatment and their cases and their numbers going through the door And, and what i really like about this interview is actually reminds us as clinicians that we're there to help people. It's the human side of optometry. Mm-hmm. But can it also create challenges? Are there particular situations you've been in where you've thought, you know, I, I very much appreciate what this person is saying, but they're pushing for something that you know is either less likely or not as evidenced, anything like that? It, it, it's expectation management. Right. And and you get people who are so driven and so determined and perhaps I, I, I can think about, clinical situations where some very high-powered people who have had very, you know, high-level political careers or high-level business careers think that they can apply the same, you, you know, determination and mm. energy and and stubbornness yeah. to win and to succeed and yeah. to save their life. And, and it's remarkable and it's very... Um, it's quite humbling to see, but at the same time, it's about managing those expectations and saying that actually a good result might be to maintain your level of vision, mm. not even to you know restore your vision or for you to drive again. And, and they can be very difficult conversations to have, but at the same time, you need to channel that positive energy that people have um, because it's a good thing um, out of what could be considered quite a, a difficult situation. So I suppose there's sort of several processes going on, isn't there? There's maybe a bit of myth busting or maybe a bit of sort of, as you say, uh, expectations about what procedures will achieve. Then there's the chat about what we're looking to actually get out of this for a patient and then to, to come to con- some consensus. I suppose it's where the two can become a bit merged that things can become difficult. Someone's clinging on for something and you're like, well, this isn't, you know, there isn't much evidence of this. So why don't we put that to one side and start talking about what, as you say, we can manage. Yeah, and it's about, as a clinician, being an educator and, and presenting mm. this kind of um, platter of options and saying what you're working towards and what good looks like and what reasonable looks like and, yeah. and, and also managing risk mm. and ensuring that, that people understand that you know every intervention often has risks involved as well yeah. and, and, and ensuring that people have a full informed picture about what they're choosing and deciding to embark upon. Mm-hmm. So we caught up with uh, Cam and uh, indeed Bernard at Optometry Tomorrow, uh, which this year, if you weren't there, was in Telford. Daniel, have you ever been to Telford before? I had never been to Telford before, but I may say it yes. was a thoroughly good experience. Yes. Um, lots of history. I'm mm-hmm. Ridge down the road. Yes. Lots of great facilities, lovely mm-hmm. restaurants, friendly people, very yeah. nice supermarkets to visit late at night. <laughs> so thumbs up to Telford. Definitely going back there again. Yes. So in your in your category of supermarkets, you visit late at night, which appears to be a thing. Uh, what is it? Top five? It, it was definitely top five. Definitely I had this, five. This, I had a fantastic See. conversation yeah. with the person in the supermarket. Mm. Yeah, I won't mention it for branding. Yeah, um, fantastic conversation, and she knew there was a group of optometrists travelling to Telford from all over the country oh, yeah. for the conference. She, was, she, she wasn't actively trying to put things in her eye just to test it. <laughs> oh, come on then, come on. No. Uh, yeah, it has a massive park. 
For anyone who doesn't know, Telford Town Park, massive park. We did a 5K run at Optometry tomorrow for the first time this year. Massive park right next to the conference centre. Really good. Lakes, monuments. I mean, I didn't know this. Did you have sunshine? Uh, inter- no. No. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get that, but maybe next year. Right, so let's catch up with Cam and Bernard. I'm here at the college's conference with Cam Balagan and Professor Bernard Gilmartin, who's joining us on the phone. So, hello, Cam. Uh, hello there. And hello, Bernard. Hello there. Hello, Martin and Cam. Hi. So, we're here to talk about your particular experience, Bernard. So, can you f- tell us when you first noticed something was wrong with your vision and based on your own, obviously, extensive professional knowledge, what you thought was actually going on? Well, it, it, it really started in the mid-90s, um, 93, 94, which at that time my age would be uh, 47, 48. And um, what was noticed, what was observed, what were um, drusen uh, scattered across the posterior pole of both eyes. Early, early case of drusen, both eyes. No effect on vision. Um, in all other respects, visual function was fine. Very disconcerting, though, because um, there's no history in the family of um, Drusen, which, which what, what it triggered, of course, was the thought that it was dry AMD. And it, well, they were indicative of dry AMD. No history in the family of um, AMD uh, at that time, and certainly not sin- since that time. So, So... Really, quite concerting. A fuse was lit, if you like, we can, if we could put it that way, because um, with my knowledge of um, ocular pathology, I knew that it could stay the same. Well, it probably would get worse gradually over time. Um, but the main thing was that there was the risk of conversion of dry AMD into wet AMD, and the risk. Uh, is of the order. I don't think it's changed not, not much. Um, maybe Cam could could comment on this, but it was of the order of one in ten. So fuse lit. I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm okay at the moment. Visually, I'm, I'm managing all right. It's going to be a case of monitoring it because um, OCT wasn't available at that time. It'd be around 2005, 2006, because we're in the mid 90s now. Um, before OCT became available. Um, so the retina can be examined at that sort of um, level of analysis. So uh, a matter of watching and waiting and keep, keeping our watch on how things were going. Later on, I did take, I uh, can't remember how long, much later, I can't remember when they first became available, but, uh, but I did um, start off on them. Later on, I took ocular nutrients designed for AMD, so now known as ARIDS. To the Areds two formula, which it, um, it wasn't at that time. So that 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 was the situation. Because um, being an optometrist, I was particularly aware of it. I graduated in optometry in 1968 from City University. Uh, so I'd, and I'd been in practice for full time general practice for quite a number of years before I went into academic life. And in fact, maintained my my clinical work all the way through well, most of my academic life. So, so I was fully aware of, um, of the implications of uh, dry AMD. So for how long um, did that go on after you first started noticing those symptoms? Was it sort of stable for uh, quite a significant amount of time? After uh, they point? increased. The um, Drusen increased in number and extent over the next 17 years. And uh, maybe I was in denial. Sure. sure. But uh, in December 2011, I had a macular hemorrhage in the right eye um, and macular distortion. Very uh, happened over an hour or two. Blurred vision. Micropsia first, um, and then a macular hemorrhage uh, the next morning. So there we are. So uh, who did you first see for help when that happened? Well, and you obviously so I, was knew at, that was... I was at Aston University, and there was yeah. a, an ophthalmologist at Aston, John Gibson, who's very well known in the area, um, now retired, who had discussed the situation with earlier and um, was aware of, aware of my condition. And so he, he saw me... Um, the next day, I think, at his uh, clinic in South Birmingham and referred me to the hospital that is more local to me, the NHS hospital, Wolverhampton Eye Infirmary. So that's when I um, presented to the medical retina team there, led by Professor Yang and uh, Nero Narendran. Um, 
December 2011 as a case of wet AMD. It was confirmed and um, the standard procedure of um, intravitreal injections of anti-VEGF agents, in this case Lucentis, was started off with an, an initial loading dose of um, three, three injections followed then by injections in due course and that, that, that then went on for three Three, four years. So what are your memories of that time? Obviously, you've had this situation in the background for a while and you, you feel that you have some idea of what's going well, on Well, I have my left eye. Yes. <laughs> Got my left eye. Yeah. Um, but, of course, both are exhibiting dry AMD. Mm. So then the second statistic then comes into play as to um, could the left eye be affected? And, um, well, it can um, again, Pam might give more information on this, but I think the risk here is a 50% chance that the other eye will go right. within five years. Right. So, so that that's that's that one. And then, then the other statistic. So I, I'm these things are turning turning around in my mind now. I'm trying to push them towards the back of my mind yeah. and not think too hard about it. Mm. Is that not everybody responds to anti-VEGF treatment? And I think there we've got something of the order of one in twenty. Mm-hmm. One in 20 patients don't respond. So there's quite a lot turning around now, uh, but I'm, I'm in very good hands. Um, you know, the team there at Wolverhampton is, um, is is outstanding, excellent. At that point, I don't think Cam was at Wolverhampton. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't at Wolverhampton. I think it was some years later that Cam came into into the uh, situation. Um, Bernard, yes. So I, th- I think you really started to lose vision in the right eye dramatically in 2014. That's right. There, there was progression and regression with the, um, the Lucentis. In fact, I think the initial stages, the first four or five months, it, it was quite promising, it seemed to be under control. But then, then there was progression and regression. And I'm absolutely right. It was 2014, November-ish, when things um, slipped out of control and um, 2015 when um, the anti-VEGF wasn't wasn't, um, achieving anything. I think what's interesting here, Bernard, is that you know, there are a lot of people out there who wouldn't have your background knowledge and would go looking yep. on the in, online, say, to try and find out information about this. And the interesting thing is that you have the information, you know the accurate information and the statistics, but they're still scary. They're still there telling you things that are something to worry about. I think that's an interesting example of where even if a patient has the correct information, there's still um, a situation there that, that needs to be dealt with and feelings that are raised. That's right. I mean, that that's this is the context of wet AMD. I mm. mean, dry AMD... Um, you still lose vision with dry MD. I think I'm right here, Kalanta, but it's a much longer process, but there is visual loss in due course. So when exactly um, did um, you first meet uh, Bernard Cam? Uh, we met uh, around March 2017. Yeah, because w- w- when the disciform scar formed in the right eye, uh, vision was well well reduced, as you'd imagine. I only had peripheral vision, so I had count fingers. So then, then it was a bit nerve-wracking as to whether the left eye would go, and it did in March 2016. 16. Um, And then the question was, Lucendis didn't work on the right eye, is it going to work on the left eye? Well, it was tried, and uh, again, it was progression, regression, but a lot of progression. Um, So towards the end of 2016, um, things were quite worrying. The CMVs, the Coronal neovascularization was becoming very evident. ILEA was tried, so an alternative anti-VEGF was tried in, uh, I think, November-ish, if I've got this right. But um, uh, it was then a question, well, what do we do? Um, and there was a watch and wait period then, which took us into 2017. And then in February 2017, there was a further CNV uh, neovascularization and at that point, Prof. Yang said, um, but brought Cam, Cam into play. And uh, there was, a, there was a, quite a major, there was a, well, there was a major hemorrhage, wasn't there, Cam? Which literally um, overnight, actually. The initial referral was concerned um, a macular hemorrhage in the left eye, acuity down to, I don't know, 6, 9, 18, 6, 24. I was booked in to see Cam in early March 
And then overnight, literally before I saw Cam, there was a further bleeding. And that was um, when we had the discussion of um, surgical management. You referred at that time to me because we had just set up a service yes. of a TPA or tissue plasminogen activator therapy uh, with the aim of providing a treatment for people who have submacular hemorrhages. So yes. the idea would be that we dissolve the blood un- that's under the fovea and under the, the central retina and then displace it to uh, a less critical um, area of peripheral bubble. retina. That's right. Um, and yeah. so when I first saw your images before we actually met, I thought that you would be uh, a good candidate uh, for that treatment that would just yes. involve injections rather than yes. any major surgery. However, yes. literally, as you state overnight, uh, by the time that I saw you, your yes. hemorrhage had become far, far more extensive yes. And, yes. and going well beyond the arcades, which then, which then put us in, in, in new territory. Because at that point, yes. I wasn't clear that just simple injection treatment alone would yes. be able to displace your blood sufficiently. I remember it well, Cam, sitting with you in that, in that <laughs> consulting room. Yes. And... Um, well, it had to be full vitrectomy. That, that's right. And uh, I think what's very important to establish to our listeners is that even now, um, you know, three years later, there still isn't any really high-level uh, randomized control data out there uh, regarding the different treatments that people are currently using for people with submacular hemorrhages, whether that's just using... Um, uh, simple intravitreal TPA injections or full vitrectomy. The, the high-level evidence still isn't out there, although uh, you know that's not uncommon for many treatments that we do. But certainly we were at a point there where we weren't clear whether we should just try injection treatment or whether we should do full surgery. And we had a very extensive discussion. And, uh, we actually, did. Actually, also did make it clear to Bernard that very few people were even doing this type of surgery. And even where I came from, where I had trained at Moorfields, nobody was doing this surgery. And I made it clear to Bernard that I had never done this operation either. Um, and we had a very long discussion. And uh, and I feel very honoured that Bernard kind of still entrusted me to, um, uh, to try and treat this eye with an operation that I hadn't done before. Um, so that involved a lot of reading uh, in a very short space of time uh, and also looking at various online material in order to, to try and uh, do this operation as uh, diligently and successfully as possible. Indeed. I just count myself very fortunate that Cam uh, Sperry's Blushes here has, has this great ability of setting things out clearly and with, with empathy. I mean, in hindsight, looking back on it now, it, you know, it was... A tricky situation, I guess, <laughs> for, for me and for him in, in the sense of um, uh, new, new territory. If it, I don't know well, whether that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, can but, um, but what, just on, on a point you made in your questions, Martin, and, and uh, in your preamble, um, from from the point of view of my background as a patient, I, th- I think one advantage is, I mean, because I'm a patient here, okay, I've... I've done this, that, and the other in optometry, but but at the end of the day, I'm a patient. Absolutely. And um, I think, but I think the advantage is that that I probably have and had um, is that I I can maybe assimilate the vocabulary better, mm-hmm. to and therefore um, assimilate the options and interpret the options maybe a bit better, because um, there are options, of course, you know that. You can you can agree to have the surgery, or you may think, well, no, I don't want the surgery. Well, I had the control condition in a way. I had the right eye, so I just needed to shut my left eye, and my right eye is count fingers. I've got a very large central scotoma there, some peripheral vision. So I, I, I sort of had a, an inkling uh, of um, if nothing was done, what 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 would be the likely outcome, and maybe even probably worse actually. And also historical um, data from previous studies, observational arms of randomized control studies show that people with large submacular hemorrhages, only about 10% at around two years maintain vision of 660 or better. Yes. 
the prognosis is generally very poor. So where can would you say this diagnosis when when Bernard came in um, where would you say it sat in terms of your average experience of a patient I mean obviously we're talking about doing surgery for the first time so <laughs> this is not an average experience this is not uh, what we would call for want of a better term normal uh, so can you remember sort of what position you felt that put you in and your own sort of specific feelings around both uh, Bernard's experience and what you were gathering was going to be your own experience of trying to help this patient first of all this was um, certainly on the extreme end of severity as far as macular degeneration cons- is concerned, as Bernard stated there, about one in 20 people don't respond. Um, at the same time, I'm now, uh, you know, my, I was looking forward to just doing a simple operation of just some injections and that was it. But now my hand was forced into doing an operation, which I'd never done before. Um, and it didn't help that it was on an only eye, uh, which adds another level of anxiety. Uh, and it certainly doesn't help that my patient is a retired professor of optometry. So there was a lot of anxiety, but at the same time, I knew that doing nothing was not a good option. Um, Previously, Bernard had been sent, when it came to his first eye, had been sent uh, locally to a large uh, local vitreal retinal unit, um, and they had declined any surgery at a stage that was very uh, similar to where Bernard's left eye now was. So um, I, I kind of knew that uh, either I did something or there would be no treatment. Um, so it was quite nerve-wracking. I think it was a, a day or two between seeing Bernard and operating on him. Um, and you know, having been in this situation before where we're operating on only eyes, um, sometimes you just have to have a quiet moment with yourself and just say, you're going to do the best you can whatever the outcome, um, and, uh, and it was uncharted territory. So how common is vitreoretinal <coughs> surgery generally, and when is it turned to as an option? So vitreoretinal surgery generally is performed for far more um, routine conditions, albeit still infrequent, so obvious conditions like uh, retinal detachments, epiretinal membranes, uh, macular holes, trauma, um, and, uh, complications of cataract surgery. It, it, it's uh, compared with, say, cataract surgery, glaucoma, plastics surgery, it's not as common, but um, which is why most ophthalmic units don't have a vitreoretinal surgeon on site. Um, and they tend to be congregated in uh, teaching units. So it's not that common as far as ophthalmic surgery is concerned. And certainly vitreoretinal surgery for uh, macular degeneration um, is quite rare. Um, there, I think many um, units still don't perform um, surgery for this um, because it is a relatively new technique. Um, and as with most techniques um, in surgery, it, it can often take several years for there to be a, a shift in culture uh, to adopt new techniques, uh, which is always helped with the availability of um, high-grade randomized data, which in terms of vitreoretinal surgery for severe macular degeneration like Bernard, um, there's a new clinical trial that will be starting very shortly that will hopefully help address this. So the, the high-level data that we need and surgeons need in order to adopt new technology with more confidence uh, will hopefully be there in the next few years. Can you, obviously, the... Uh surgery took place. Uh, can you talk us through that and what happened next over the next, say, year or so of the treatment? Yes, so um, surgery was all done under local anaesthetic, uh, which is how I tend to do most of uh, my operations. And Bernard was was fantastic in that regard. Not everybody is suitable for local anaesthesia. Um, and the actual operation itself took about um, an hour, hour and a half, and that involved removing the vitreous, which is the vitrectomy part, um, and then we used a um, a very special, very fine cannula to deliver the drug tissue plasminogen activator, also known as a clot-busting agent, which was previously used in myocardial infarction and is currently standard of care in patients who have ischemic stroke. Uh, but to deliver a very small quantity of that underneath the retina to try and target the blood clot directly. And in addition to this, um, I injected Lucentis under the retina and also sterile air under the retina. So the idea was that the 
TPA would dissolve the blood. The lucentis would hopefully prevent any further um, bleeding from the membrane. And the idea behind the air in the subretinal space and in the vitreous cavity would be that when Bernard would um, be in the upright position, the buoyancy effect of the air would um, allow for enhanced displacement of the now dissolved or thrombolized blood into the inferior retina and away from the macula. And uh, postoperatively, unfortunately, developed um, uh, a breakthrough vitreous hemorrhage. So some of the blood from under the retina entered into the vitreous cavity, which is good in some ways in that it's better for it to be in the vitreous cavity rather than the subretinal space where it's toxic. But that itself required further surgery. And following that further operation, um, uh, upon postoperative review a few weeks later, we were all um, very pleasantly shocked to find that all the blood had disappeared um, from the central retina, and his vision had improved to uh, a remarkable 6-9. And Bernard was now able to fix centrally. And I think, Bernard, this was the first time you were able to actually see me. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. that's correct. It, it was, well, it was a miracle, to be, to be frank. Um, I could uh, read, uh, you know... Um, well, with six nine, you, you can do. There's not much you can't do. Again, from a patient's point of view, when when we had that initial discussion, that very crucial discussion, um, maybe you should say, Martin, from my point of view as a patient, you have to make the decisions very quickly. You you know you can't go away and say, well, that's well, okay. I'll, I'll have a think about this and come back in two weeks. I mean, literally, Cam, you have to do it the next day, didn't you? That's right. Um, you, you know, so 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 there's that aspect, maybe. maybe that maybe should be emphasized. Um, and, and I'm with somebody, and I can't see their face. Yes. And this is somebody who's going to operate on me the next day with, you know, in this complex, very challenging operation. And so, so the whole situation is, is interesting, to say the least. But, yeah. <laughs> but 6-9, well, it was just amazing, um, absolutely amazing. And, um, but... But is, uh, the story continues. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I just say on on that, I was going to ask you what your memories are of that time. But as you say, because it was all happening so quickly, and it sounds like uh, you know the six nine was so was, again was so sudden. Would you say you have a full memory of that time, or is it sort of uh, single episodes and sort of not necessarily in a line? Is it what are your memories of the time? How does that work? Well, it's local anaesthetic as cameras. I think you just heard him say it's local anaesthetic. So certainly it's a memory, you know, two or three hours there. Um, and you can actually see, because um, it's that retinal level, you can actually see the manipulation that's being carried out, the, the blood being removed, wow. uh, which, which is quite surreal. Yes. It is really quite surreal. Um, and then uh, the vitreous hemorrhages afterwards, uh, I had what's called Charles Bonnet, Syndrome, where you get hallucinations and you get your brain sort of thinking, well, I should be seeing something, mm. I'll make something up. So mm. you, you tend to get these uh, strange hallucinations. So that followed. Mm. And then there's the challenge of the uh, posture, which has to be done throughout the day and night. So, so those are my memories. But um, it, I suppose the overriding memory is, you know, absolutely fantastically grateful that I'd actually, because I, I hadn't really envisage getting much vision back mm. so to get six nine was was amazing so that was in april um 2017 when bernard achieved six nine and um so having achieved this amazing result that nobody expected and i certainly did not expect that um we thought well look we've now cleared the blood but we haven't actually addressed the underlying pathology and maybe Bernard is someone that needs very very intensive anti-VEGF injections so it made sense to then treat Bernard very intensively and actually we decided as a department we would fund in giving him anti-VEGF injections every three weeks which is off license but his eye was vitrectomized and so one can envisage that the anti-VEGF wouldn't uh, last as long in the eye and so we're treating him every three weekly but despite really intensive treatment um, by May he then bled again um, and you know we were all very disheartened by this and, and it must have been a real roller coaster of a ride for Bernard who went from not having any central vision in his only eye to now being having vision good enough to drive to now losing that again 
yeah. all, all in the space of um, weeks. That's right. Um, and so, you know, we were then in the same situation. What do we do? Um, the injection treatment isn't working. And I didn't really want to go in and operate again because, again, this was now becoming more and more uncharted territory. Um, not only did most surgeons not operate on this, but I, I was unaware of anyone that had gone in and reoperated. And so I thought, let's just try the simpler injection treatment alone, uh, which didn't do much. Um, and we then, again, and this was a, a very in-depth patient-doctor discussion, where we both have to be very frank with what we're trying to achieve, what we know and what we don't know um, about the current situation and about the future, and, and decided to then reoperate uh, with the aim of trying to irrigate the blood from under the retina um, again away. Um, and that seemed to be working, but then what we all dread as vitro-retinal surgeons then happened, which was... Um, an adverse outcome of vitro retinal surgery, uh, which in Bernard's case then resulted in a retinal detachment. And at the operation I was just mentioning, I then said to Bernard, said, look, I'm uncomfortable actually doing this operation because it's uncharted territory. I will do what I can, but I'll have to make up a lot of it as I go along. Um, but I want to make it very clear to you that this is probably the last time I'm actually going to be operating. That's right. Interventionally. Um, but when he then detached, I had no option but to reoperate um, because he yep. would now lose all vision uh, in his only eye. And at this point, um, although I didn't make it very clear to Bernard at the time, part of me did um, have some regrets about operating in the first place because uh, all this, the, you know, the, the retinal detachment had now been... Um, induced by the multiple operations he had had and I thought well he wouldn't be in this situation if we hadn't performed full surgery in the first place but at the same time he would be completely blind centrally um, so you have mixed feelings as as an individual because we've developed a personal relationship now with Bernard uh, also a very intelligent patient uh, his only eye um, and, and as a surgeon you have these mixed feelings that you feel that you must do something because it's their only eye, and at the same time, maybe you shouldn't do it because it's their only eye, uh, especially when it's um, an operation that just isn't something anyone's been trained to do. Um, so he then uh, redetached, um, but that also was an opportunity, I felt, at the time of performing retinal redetachment surgery to irrigate the blood from under the retina again, because again, I was now being forced to operate yet again. So let's take that opportunity and try and uh, irrigate the blood from under the retina. Um, and we undertook this surgery in September of 2017, and actually that was quite successful. So we managed to reattach mm. his retina and move a lot of the blood away from under the macula, which then allowed us to do some um, uh, quite essential uh, angiographic investigations. So the idea then was um, clearly the neovascular membrane that Bernard had is behaving very unusually. It's resistant to current gold standard treatments. What else can we do? We couldn't do um, the previous treatment, which is photodynamic therapy, because it was the wrong type of lesion. Um, and we came up with the idea, myself and Professor Yang, let's try an old-fashioned treatment that we that had gone out of fashion around 2003, 2004, when the newer treatments came out. And that was to use old-fashioned thermal laser ablation of any identifiable bleeding source. So the idea would be that we use um, a high-power laser, we identify the, the bleeding source, and laser photocoagulate it. What that would mean for the patient, and for Bernard, is that he would lose vision in that area, but with the aim of preserving vision more overall so you'd have to accept some loss in order to accept some gain um, so we were lining that up um, he had the investigations and just before we were going to deliver the laser he then detached again um, and this time uh, with a lot of what we call proliferative vitro retinopathy which is every vitro retinal surgeon's worst nightmare uh, which is um, scar tissue very severely adherent scar tissue that's built up on the retina that 
that then causes the recurrent retinal detachment. And so again, I had no choice but to go in and operate. And this time it was even more complex uh, surgery uh, that involves peeling away a lot of the scar tissue and putting in uh, a silicone oil bubble in order to, um, in order to keep the retina attached. Um, but the advantage of this was um, that Bernard could see through the oil at this point. Yeah, um, the argon laser, um, uh, I had done the, uh, by Professor Yang, and uh, I was quite pleased with that outcome because I, I, I was anticipating more visual loss than there actually was. But the, but a, the second detachment, of course, was a blow, a uh, major dis- full detachment. And um, but that was managed, as um, I, I caught Cam just saying then, um, with the oil injection. And just before the Christmas, I then had um, uh, a spectacle correction to to because um, it's got a refractive um, value the oil. So I had a refractive correction to just see, make me see a little bit better. It was plus three, I believe, plus three, plus four, which saw me through the Christmas. Um, period uh, and a reading edition of course um so vision was reasonable they all would have to be removed in in due course prior to that we gave the presentation for those listeners who went to the optometry um conference in march 2018 um they all were still in then and and we were reporting at that stage um the what we described up to this point was reported in, in the March 2018 conference. At that point, we'd gone to what Cam has been describing, what, what we've been describing regarding the surgery, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so the situation there was I had the oil still in there, ready to be taken out. I'd also had an um, uh, intraocular lens implant, and we thought the joint presentation would be valuable to give my my um, patient perspective, patient experience, alongside the surgeon's um, description and account and illustration. I mean, Cam had some fantastic videos. I mean, they were unbelievable, stunning. Um, and, and that was very well received and in due course was reported later in that year, uh, October of that year, in optometry by... Uh, Bite size, yeah. Version. Yeah. So how did it feel to go to those conferences and to talk about your experience, as you say? Well, was... I think you used the words um, scary, therapeutic, and illuminating. Well, it was all three, actually. <laughs> right, yep, sure. <laughs> all three, but um, certainly illuminating because Cam put together this fantastic presentation. I mean, mm. Is that the first time you felt that you had the story of what had happened to you actually laid out in one go? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think, gosh, they're talking about me. Because <laughs> <You know>, <laughs> it's usually the other way around, I'm like talking to an audience about mm. myopia or something like that. And uh, now I'm, I'm sort of sitting there, um, not being able to see a thing with the conference hall lights on me. Right. And it was qu- quite strange. But, uh, but uh, that was re- really, it was certainly illuminating. Mm. Um, and therapeutic in a way, um, I was quite nervous, to be honest. Yes. Um, I, th- I did find it quite an ordeal, but, but it was very nice to see how well received it was. Had, um, had you spoken to anyone else about, you know, your feelings about it and about that story? Had you spoken to really, family no. and friends? No, 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 not really. I mean, obviously friends and yes. family. Um, no, it's the first time there was a public, mm-hmm. a public display, as it were. Yeah, it's probably um, worth clarifying that's not what every patient has to do. I mean, <laughs> this isn't no, part no, of no, the process, right. exactly. You know, so. and um, Cam, you know, we, 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 we discussed it again, as we, we always had very valuable and constructive discussions about everything really and um so we said you know what, what do you think what 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 do you think do you think we do you think this will go down so we said yeah let's do it um and so i'm very pleased we did it and um and on the second occasion as well it, it was very well received cam was making the point and i don't know how, how the college has picked up on this that it was becoming popular and a trend in medicine to have patients point of view yeah. Um, juxtaposed against the clinician and, and surgeon, and uh, in education, clinical education terms, I think this is. Um, I don't think it's new, but I, I think it's certainly a developing area. It is. So the idea of a professional patient is becoming more and more valuable, and the idea of the patient as the teacher is becoming a very valuable learning uh, resource, both at undergraduate and postgraduate levels. But but the other the other reason we both felt that this would be a great 
presentation to do at Optometry Tomorrow was, number one, it's novelty, but also um, the average optometrist may see a patient with macular degeneration. They may diagnose in the community or it may be uh, someone who's under hospital treatment, but they never really um, see what happens to that patient once they've referred the patient and also what how the patient feels about um, the treatment they're receiving and how they're coping with uh, with the stresses of treatment and the stresses of of low vision, and and that's where I think it really struck home uh, to yeah. the audience uh, at that presentation, which is seeing this from a real person's perspective. Also brought home by the fact that Bernard taught many of the people in the audience as well, and, and so there was that personal link, and and I, you didn't see this Bernard, but I could certainly see that there was, you know, some almost tearful kind of reactions in the audience from people that obviously held you very, very dearly in their hearts who were now listening to this story of, of what people often said was their favourite professor uh, undergoing such, uh, you know, such a dramatic course of events. Yeah, I, I think also, um, I think I had an opportunity to mention this, this in both the presentations. I think certainly the first one, maybe not, I'm not so much sure about the second one, but the very practical side of it, you know, the posture is quite demanding. Two or three weeks of um, continuous postures for patients is, is difficult. Did you have to so- sit up, basically, for that length of time? Well, you, it's face down, face to the side. Oh, I see, right. Yeah. Um, face to the right side, face to the left side. I didn't quite have to stand on my head. Right. Cam didn't get me standing on my head, but <laughs> I think maybe that could have been an option. I don't mm. know, but obviously the <laughs> practical difficulties there. But... Um, uh, but, but it's continuous through the day. and But the other things are eating. You know, you can't see what you're eating. So you use bowls. And I remember my grandchildren having a, a good laugh at messy. You know, we had a messy eating contest. <laughs> um, and uh, it was a close call, but right. I, I just think they've I probably lost. But um, <laughs> he, he, um, hearing and talking, you can't see. It, it affects your hearing because you... Yeah. You can't really see people's expressions, and particularly in a, in a group of people, it's hard to follow a conversation. Mm. Um, but the, the big thing is walking, the mobility side of it, because my very right eye dominance, I've lost central vision in my right eye, and of course now my left eye was compromised. And um, the last thing I wanted was a fall, mm. um, you know, crack a hip or whatever. So, uh, and I'm very keen on walking, fell walking, walking in general. And uh, so that, that's, that's, been, um, that's been difficult because your fitness goes, you know. And you, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the advice for patients, I would say, to just try and get those exercises going. I mean, you know, even simple indoor exercises, you've got to keep that going because you can easily go, get on a downward spiral, I think. And get into melancholy and nostalgia and mm. so on, as you as you can imagine. <laughs> sure, sure. So, uh, can you talk us, Cam, through what happened next after you gave these presentations at the uh, conferences? So, at the time that um, most people have, will have last heard this um, this story, um, Bernard had the oil in situ. So, the we were just waiting for the oil to come out, um, and at that point, also. Um, during one of the operations, there was a complication that resulted in some significant damage to his iris and also to the intraocular lens that I'd inserted at the time of taking out uh, Bernard's cataract. So the plan was in, I think it was around March, April 2019, we'd take the oil out, um, inspect the retina again to see if any further work needed to be done, if the retina was starting to redetach, for example, and if it wasn't, to then um, repair the iris, which we then did and that went quite well. Bernard was getting uh, visual side effects from having effectively two pupils. So we did need from a functional perspective, visual functional perspective to repair the iris defect which uh, we did at the time of removing the oil and thankfully his retina remained fully attached. Um, So that all went very well and again repairing the iris was an operation that we rarely do Um, and um, I think at that point I'd only ever done that once. And that was as a consultant, so we weren't trained uh, necessarily to do that. But that all went very well, and I think Bernard had a very good cosmetic result from that. Uh, unfortunately, his intraocular lens was also decentered, and there was an area of fibrosis over the, the capsule 
um, which Bernard was clearly symptomatic of. So he then underwent a further operation where we removed the intraocular lens. And um, th th there was an interesting debate at this point between myself and Bernard because I think Bernard was about minus six um, originally. Um, and and I felt that if we just took the lens out and we left him aphakic, he would end up hopefully being about plus four, um, which would be quite beneficial in someone who's got reduced macular function in that they would then require a pair of plus four lenses in order to see in the distance and stronger for near vision, which would provide some useful magnification. Um, Bernard, with his extensive knowledge, felt that he would be more hyperopic than this and so we had a little almost like a gentleman's bet as to what refraction he would end up being and of course Bernard was right and I was wrong um, but with um, with contact lens uh, correction after the oil had come out Bernard actually achieved a really good um, visual acuity of 612 um, which considering what he had been through in terms of the multiple retinal detachments the multiple episodes of blood under the retina um, and very presenting visual acuity. Again, we were really happy with this, and and uh, I think Bernard was was fixing centrally or, or paracentrally at the time, and was able to read his emails with some assistance. Um, so we were both very very happy with that. Um, so that was up until April 2019, and to everyone's uh, kind of the day we were dreading um, in July last year, he then suffered again a, a huge. Um, subretinal hemorrhage and remember many operations ago I'd said to Bernard I was never going to operate again so again now he had a, a very large subretinal hemorrhage again I didn't want to go in and do a vitrectomy but having um, had complications in the past in Bernard with the retinal detachments so again we tried just the simple intravitreal injection alone um, which resulted in very little displacement of blood um, and uh, at this stage, Bernard's vision was 660, um, and again with a large central scotoma. Um, and so, uh, again, very, very uncharted territory. And, and I discussed this case with many of my uh, vitro-retinal consultant colleagues and around the country, including at Morphles, and, and again, nobody had come anywhere close to operating this many times on, on a patient. So again, I, uncharted territory. W with all these decisions in medicine we as a surgeon or as a physician you have to decide what are the risks and benefits of doing nothing versus the risks and benefits of doing something um, and with some patients they just simply say well you're the doctor you decide which is often not what the doctor wants to hear but with obviously someone with Bernard's knowledge and intelligence we have a much more balanced uh, discussion because Bernard had seen such benefit from interventions so far and because I had seen so so much benefit from the intervention so far we were both keen to at least try something because everything we'd done so far seemed to have worked uh, so in July I underwent further uh, Bernard underwent further subretinal surgery again to try and displace the blood into the peripheral retina um, and again that seemed to work so his visual acuity and the extent of blood significantly improved um, by October his visual acuity had improved from 660 uh, remember it was 612 before his last bleed which then dropped to 660, so a dramatic reduction. And I think Bernard was uh, away in uh, the Lake District uh, walking at the time. That's um, right, yeah. And then, um, and, and then we managed to get his visual acuity up to 618 by, uh, by October. At, at this stage, we, both Professor Yang and myself, felt that you know, maybe that his neovascular lesion was steroid responsive because whilst he had um, oil uh, in and whilst he was receiving treatment for his retinal detachments, we were also providing some periocular steroid. And during that time, he didn't bleed, uh, and for for many months. So we we felt that because we know inflammation is involved in macular degeneration, and because he was completely unresponsive to anti-VEGF injections, let's try periocular steroid injections. So Bernard was receiving those, and the plan was to wait for the new blood to disappear sufficiently enough to then repeat the angiogram investigations to then find any active bleeding sources and to then again perform laser ablation of that bleeding source so we'd been watching bernard for almost seven months waiting for the blood to clear sufficiently and during this time he hadn't bled 
he was due laser, um, I think, on well, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, the, the, the 6th of February. 6th of February. And what happened the day before? Uh, on the 4th of February, I had a bleed, a further macular bleed. Which was tragic because he had had Which, no bleeds for seven months. Yep. Um, and then bled again. And, and that's where we are now. So we've uh, again treated that again with several injections of tissue plasminogen activator. Um, and there's been, you know, disappointingly very little displacement of blood uh, at this stage. Unfortunately, the blood is not thick enough to warrant, I think, um, going in and performing subretinal surgery again. Uh, and every time we do that, induces further scarring. Um, and so we, we, we're just watching and waiting uh, for this blood yep. to resolve and hope that doesn't uh, recur and just allow us enough of a window of opportunity to try and laser this vessel because the vessel itself is unusual. It's become quite arterialized. It's, it's quite a large caliber um, abnormal vessel rather than the very fine vessels uh, that most people with neovascularization and AMD have that, that, that then become responsive to anti-VEGF injections. So that's where we are now. And you can see that I think at last count, not including anti-VEGF injections, um, Bernard had had almost 20 procedures to this only eye over the course of um, almost three years to try and prevent blindness uh, in this eye. And it's been a, you know, a tremendous roller coaster journey for Bernard and, and myself as well. Um, but absolutely most mostly for Bernard in in uh, both from a physical and emotional perspective and that you have very good vision you lose it again then you get it back again and you lose it again and you think well when when is this going to end and and the story still hasn't reached its conclusion yet I think that's an extraordinary tale Cam um Bernard yeah at, at this stage I mean how are you how are you feeling oh fine yeah well his fingers crossed um everything's crossed mm. um <laughs> Here too, and yeah. it's we we've been here before, mm. um, and yeah, well, you know, just as Cam said, watch and wait. Hope that blood can uh, disperse sufficiently to expose the um, tissue sufficiently to, that an organ laser ablation can can be carried out, because uh, that's where we were. Um, at the beginning of um, this month, mm -hmm. um, ready to do it in, in February the 6th, and uh, very bad luck for that further bleed on the 4th of uh, February. The July incident um, this year, that, that was a major bleed, well, it was a real blow, um, because it, we, with the combination of spectacles and contact lens, um, it was doing quite well, really. Um, I had a plus eight um, daily disposable lens, contact lens, um, with a supplementary spectacle lens of plus one or thereabouts. Do you feel like the experiences you've had until this point, obviously the, the entire journey, is helping you to try and keep um, motivated or do you feel like it's having a bit of an effect where you've got a lot of other things to think about? Is there any way in which you think because it's gone on so long that you feel you know, a, a certain way about where you are now? Uh, it's a roll. It's been a roller coaster, yeah. as Cam said. It, it's it's up and down. You you know, three o'clock in the morning, you lay there and you think, oh, you know, mm. um, and then other times you think, well, I'm a I'm a very lucky guy, um, you know, to have this care and attention from, um, you know, and all the resources that have been that have been put in over the three years. And I just I hope and I like to think that, you know, some of the payback is that uh, the um, the new the new thoughts and approaches to uh, intraocular surgery are going to be valuable, you know, in the longer term and in, in, in the broader context. So, you know, take, take away that positive. And then the positive of, well, you know, we got 6-9. We got 6-9 a couple yeah. of years ago. Uh, I'm not looking for 6-9, by the way. But, sure. um, you know, uh, you have to go from day to day, yeah. really. Uh, um, just to acknowledge the help, the help and the care and attention from Wolverhampton Eye Infirmary at all levels. Surgical, nursing, technical support—the whole, the whole support staff, the whole thing has been uh, been tremendous, absolutely wonderful. That's great, Bernard. No, thank you very much for that. And and well, certainly all the staff, you know, find you they're, they're one of their most, one of their favourite patients as well because you're, you're, you're such <laughs> yeah. a such a perfect patient. But um, a, but but touching on a point you made there, Bernard, I think 
again, one positive thing that another positive thing that's come out here is that having presented your case to um, many vitro retinal surgeons at our national British British and Ireland vitro retinal society meeting, and more recently at, at the national Greek vitro retinal society meeting, um, the comments I've had back from many vitro retinal surgeons was that again they were amazed that we could actually operate this many times on an eye. Yes, um, and. Um, the general consensus was that I think now, um, at least the surgeons I spoke with after the talk, was that if they encountered a patient like yourself, they probably won't give up anywhere near as early as perhaps they would have done. Uh, yeah. and, and they'll keep reoperating because of this one case they have now heard of being able to rescue an eye through numerous operations, at least rescue yeah. so far. And, and I think that has been a very important uh, teaching lesson to the vitreal retinal community. Yes. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, therefore, people, you know, surgeons, you know, may continue to um, operate on patients in the hope that they may achieve yes. Um, yes. You know, positive results. It does feel like a bit of a mantra, maybe, that could be said. Remember the 6 9. Remember we got 6 9. Um, so I think, you know, there's there's not just a session in, in all this, I think. There's a whole conference, Bernard. I think, you know, we should have Bernard Fest annually to uh, cover the ramifications of all this. But, uh, Cam, I just wanted to come back to you briefly, just because I know that you've said that this is, you've never seen anything like this. Uh, no one really has ever seen anything like this. Are you able to quickly summarize sort of why or why this is so different? What, not necessarily what's caused it, but what, what makes it so different, so unique? The, the natural history would be of severe uh, neovascular macular degeneration. That most people respond. You know, most people respond to anti-VEGF treatment. Uh, and only one in 20 don't. And when they don't, um, they, you know, they end up with a lesion that eventually becomes quiescent. Uh, what's unusual about Bernard's uh, case is that his lesion, after all this time, should have become quiescent, uh, and it isn't. And then it just surprises everyone by suddenly not just leaking slowly, which is generally how most patients with macular degeneration present, or if they get reactivation of disease, just slow leaking, which you can then pick up on OCT scanning. But Bernard presents with sudden massive bleeds, um, and, and and that's the unusual part of it, and and we can we kind of see why this occurs, and that he doesn't have the typical appearance of a neovascular membrane. He's got quite large bore arterialized vessels, um, which, for reasons again we don't quite understand, can remain stable for months, and then just suddenly decide to bleed. Um, and so there's a lot of unusual features here that then make Bernard's um, uh, case very unusual. Uh, almost unique, um, and 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 that's the exciting but also challenging aspect of this. Do you think, in the long run, that sort of thing could be a biomarker for other people at risk of this situation, based on scans that could be undertaken in practice? Again, I think this is a, a very unusual situation. Uh, I think the main point to come out of this is that, as we learn more and more about the surgical treatment of macular degeneration, um, we can also appreciate that we can reoperate on patients. Um, so should we get a patient that's challenging as Bernard in the future, um, we shouldn't give up. And, and since then, we've operated on you know, some horrendous cases of, of, of very extensive macular degeneration, even worse than Bernard's, um, that in either otherwise would be you know, untreatable. And we've managed to salvage some vision you know, at least to the point where we can prevent lysis in some of these eyes. So for me as a surgeon compared with where I was three years ago, um, certainly now a lot more interventional in these eyes that otherwise we would have said no in terms of surgery. You know, you've lost your vision and you've lost your eye and we shouldn't do any more. Um, uh, and talking to these patients that I have operated on with very severe loss of vision due to this, they all do feel that they are in a better place with the vision, albeit maybe limited, compared with where they were before surgery. So uh, I, cases like this, I think, will, in, in addition to the randomised study that is being that will be initiated, I think will hopefully uh, again result in a shift in the way we manage uh, patients like Bernard and, and more common um, uh, uh, causes of submacular hemorrhage uh, in the future. So I think it's an exciting time to. Um, to be in, uh, and, and I'm sure that the landscape within in five years' time from now will be more favouring 
um, intervention rather than just observation. And Bernard, did you have any, uh, just a last additional sort of words of wisdom for uh, anybody who might find themselves in a similar situation? I think one thing to say is, um, of course, you can get very introspective. Well, you do get very introspective. Mm. Um, but remember the people around you, because often family, friends, except particularly close family, if, if assuming they're visually normal, and it, it may be very difficult for them to understand your problems. You know, and and so you you, you have you have to I think bear that in mind. Mm. Um, the, the difficulties. Uh, particularly when you've got some peripheral vision. To them, you can use your peripheral vision, and often they may think, oh, well, he's seeing very well. He can see this and that. But and it's hard for them to appreciate the limitations of um, no central vision um, combined with peripheral vision, where, where you may get a degree of vision, um, uh, but can be misinterpreted by people around you. So so what I'm trying to say is that, um, you know, just, just sort of bear in mind that... Um, you know, people around you, obviously they're very sympathetic and they're very caring and very helpful, but it, it is not always easy to appreciate vi- sure. visual dysfunction. Yeah, I hope certainly that experiences like yourself in telling your story and other patients who get the opportunity to do so will allow people to, to have that perspective and to uh, to understand that experience. Thank you to Cam Balligan and indeed uh, Bernard Gilmartin for being with us on the phone. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Cam and Bernard for sparing us so much of their time, details, data, experiences, slides, pretty much everything with us over the course of about an hour. Their story is hopefully revealing and powerful for anyone listening, I would say. We wish Bernard all the best for his future treatments. Thank you very much for being with us once again. Remember, you can like, rate, subscribe to the podcast. And if you haven't looked at our back catalogue, then feel free to peruse at your leisure. Uh, That's it from us. We'll speak to you next time. (laughs) 